Thank you. Um, well, I must say that it's such a treat to be here. I presented yesterday at a conference here in in England, and it was an audience full of people who didn't really know much about family law or about Bahrain even. And so it's it's a wonderful opportunity to be here with a group of scholars who know what I'm talking about. That said, I feel like the presentation I prepared might almost be a little bit too basic. So if you'd like me to go into greater detail during the question and answer session, please probe me with questions about nuance. I'd, I'd love to field them. Uh, so I also want to emphasize that I'm a historian, and so therefore I'm bringing a different perspective to some of the discussions that came out of this morning. Uh, instead of kind of looking at the nuances of the law, I'm looking at the ways in which the law facilitated uh, certain governmental responses, but also responses amongst uh, the women of Bahrain. Uh, and I guess by way of beginning, I should emphasize that the current political and social turmoil in Bahrain has put my research into the intersecting leftist and religious uh, women's activism in the country on pause. Uh, I am no longer able to attain a visa to go back to the country, so I am, as the introduction said, kind of historicizing some of the, the trends that I picked up in my original research in Bahrain. Um, the, my presentation is less about the content about, about Bahrain's fi family law and more about how the government's attempt to codify family law politicized women's rights and ultimately about how the government and how the government professes a certain adherence to women's rights and principles but in practice, the changes that they promise are never universally actuated, um, a point that I will return to in the conclusion. The Kingdom of Bahrain has a history of engaging women's rights on local and international levels. Feminism and women's rights have become the means through which Bahra the Bahraini government performed its adherence to international human rights and human rights doctrines. However, a disconnect exists between Bahrain's international attestations about women's rights and its implementation of said rights in the country, what I call the progressive mystique. A consequence of the government's move to superficially embrace international women's rights protections has politicized women's rights domestically. The government's attempts to codify Bahrain's family law and thereby demonstrate to the international public its women's rights protections turned women's rights into a battleground between leftist and religious activists in the country. To give context to this paper on the government of Bahrain's progressive mystique, uh, it is necessary to review the history of women's rights in the country and women's activism in the country as well and record the state's responses to the changing uh, dynamics in that relationship. So this is a brief gloss of the history of women's activism in Bahrain, uh, but uh, you know, probe me deeper, uh, you know, ask me to go further into some of the details if I haven't uh, addressed them adequately as I go over them briefly. Um, so uh, the Islamic Revolution in Iran and other social factors split Bahraini women's activism into leftist and religious blocs. And I call it leftist and religious because I don't think that the secular religious binary is particularly helpful in this country, nor do I think that the religious or the leftist conservative binary is particularly effective. I think that kind of dis, uh, disturbing the matrix and kind of moving diagonally is a much more effective means of kind of emphasizing the ways in which the women's rights movement in Bahrain has been expressed it, using both the idioms of leftist ideology and the left idioms of religious ideology. Um, so before uh, or in the decades following the revolution, Bahrain's Leftist activists learned to contend with a new voice in women's rights, one supported by religion. The first formal women's organization was founded, religious women's organization, was founded in 2001, the same year Bahraini women attained the right to vote. In 2005, 
Leftist and religious conceptualizations of women's rights clashed in a massive demonstration concerning the codification of family law, an international, or, you know, as we all know, an integral element of uh, Sharia or Islamic law. The final section of this presentation will explore the governmental performance of women's rights and its influence in the implementation of family law. So in the 1950s, uh, there was the establishment of the first at this time, it wasn't a leftist women's organization, just the first women's organization. Um, it quickly broke off of a, a male uh, charity organization, male political organization, uh, because the women, uh, quote, uh, believed that uh, women's issues were specialized issues and they should be left for men. So the women kind of understood <laughs> that their... Uh, their issues had a place in society. They didn't necessarily feel like being a women's wing was going to help them actuate and attain some of the the changes that they wanted. Uh, so, you know, the women in this organization and later leftist women and even later decades, uh, religious women in Bahrain made no such d distinction between women's issues and politics and they established their own formal organizations. Um, in the 1960s, there were more women's organizations. They ran preschools and literacy centers. The charity work of women in Bahrain will kind of fall out later in the, the discussion of uh, or the later parts of this presentation. So I want to take a moment here now to emphasize that social charity work still continues in the country. That's still a major facet of women's activism in Bahrain. Uh, for example, you know, there are computer literacy programs that are run by women's organizations in the country, uh, and they there were organizations, you know, in the 1950s and 60s ran educational campaigns. Those campaigns continue. A lot of that education focuses on English education uh, because the women who are running the organizations who are mostly of the Sunni uh, minority but kind of a socioeconomic majority, uh, the, the women who run these charity organizations understand that English is necessary to work in the hospitality industry, which is a major uh, source of income because Bahrain is a site of intra-gulf intra tourism. So in the early decades, there was no governmental engagement in women's rights, uh, in part because Bahrain is a British protectorate, in part because women's rights were considered the domain of women. <laughs> um, so the 1970s, oh, so uh, these are women in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, kind of a decade of interesting fashion choices globally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, who knows why that is going ahead. Uh, so emphasize that the 1970s were a turning point. Um, secular women's organizations who at this point had taken on a certain leftist ideology uh, campaigned against the government uh, for the first time um, because the government had taken its first stance on women's rights in the country. Um, in 1972, Bahrain or 1971, Bahrain attained independence from the British. Um, and in that same year, they passed, uh, essentially, women were not given the right to vote. Um, and women's organizations sent a petition, um, kind of trying to emphasize that they didn't necessarily agree with gender-segregated enfranchisement. Uh, so, uh, quote, uh, we the underside, undersigned, the popular societies that represent women in Bahrain, submit to the central ministries our protest of the decision to deny women the right to participate in the nomination and election process. Bahrain has always been the cultural, social, and civilizational leader in the Gulf. Why does it today remove an active element of its population from participation in the march towards progress?" End quote. 
and later in their their protest literature or you know in their uh, petition they talked about you know the that men were citing the veil and the fact that women were uneducated as the reasons that they weren't allowed to vote the women in the content of the Petition said, well, the veil, we can work around that. If women's identities are obscured, well, we can figure out ways of ensuring that we know who's voting. Um, as to whether or not you know, women are uneducated, well, quote, a large percentage of ignorant men also exist, men who have no independent opinions. The election laws do not require that men must be aware and knowledgeable before they are given the right to vote, end quote. Uh, and so, you know, the women are kind of pe they're taking apart a lot of the, the doctrine that is kind of used to kind of keep them out of uh, the electoral process. The women also invoked uh, the United Nations Charter that said it clearly prohibited the discrimination of electoral rights based on, um, on sex and gender. Um, and so this petition, I believe, demonstrates how leftist women in Bahrain took the ideas and concepts from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, international law, and regional discussions of Arabism. Uh, in, ad in addition to maternalist rhetoric, they talked about raising de generations, religious traditions, veiling, um, and adapted these differing discourses to their localized context and their desire for voting rights. The simultaneous Evocation of secular discourse and religious tradition demonstrates that there's a false binary imposed between religious and you know secular on many levels. Dualism does not capture the nuances of women's activism in Bahrain. Uh, you know, challenging a religious leader's jurisdiction over family law was not the same as rejecting religion, and religious inspiration on a personal level uh, did not mean a disregard for women's rights and, or Islam. Uh, so in the absence of a national protections for women's rights, women in Bahrain were connecting their issues to international rights protections. Uh, in this period, but the Bahraini government uh, was not engaging in either local women's rights discussions or international women's rights discussions. Um, the 1980s, we see the first... Uh, family law campaigns that are established uh, by leftist organizations. The leftist organizations met uh, some initial response, uh, resistance from individuals, uh, so they kind of adapted their campaigns instead of, you know, just handing out pamphlets and saying, women, you should be for your protections, uh, you know, under, you know, a codified family law structure. They instead created health centers in local communities. Women came to these local health centers and in the process of teaching women about certain health issues and giving them health uh, advice and guidance, they also started to talk about family law, so they kind of circumvented some of the initial reticence to kind of discourse about family law. Um, the 1980s, we also see the first effects of the Iranian Revolution and how it really split uh, Bahraini women's activism. Uh, it split activism into two veins. So we see, you know, the entrenched existent leftist organization and the emergence of a re uh, religious um, idiom for women's activism. Whereas before, the only formally active vein of activism really had been uh, leftist in orientation. So after the religious turn, um, bah um, Bahraini's leftist women's activists had to recalibrate many of their initiatives uh, to target their their Bahraini women. Uh, that was their target population. Um, so they, you know, had you know additional educational campaigns, uh, and we see that the religious organizations that came out of this split in the women's movement used the same technologies. Essentially, they used pamphlets, but they also created uh, centers to help guide women. The difference between the religious centers and the kind of secular centers: the secular centers were centered in 
health centers, whereas the religious women made use of matam and kind of Hausa centers uh, as a place to talk about religious women's rights. And I can go a little bit more uh, in depth in, into that. One of the reasons that a lot of this politicization of women's activism was, uh, you know, came about in Bahrain is, you know, this also comes about at the, the period, end of a period of a transition from the Akbari school of Shia Islam to the Asuli school of Islam. So, you know, the concurrent um, larger political changes. Um, leftist women's organizations uh, tried to engage the state on behalf of their rights, their secular rights during this period, but also, you know, attempted to try to codify family law through the 1980s and 1990s. This really was stalled due to uh, tremendous amounts of governmental repression. Uh, so, you know, the state really ignored women's claims to the rights as women during this period uh, and essentially was violently suppressing any kind of political discourse. Uh, they continued to kind of see women's rights and political rights as distinct um, so while there was a ban on most formal political activism, women's organizations were continue were allowed to kind of continue to function in the country, though they weren't allowed to engage in like political actions. Um, so one one of the women that I spoke to kind of described the process of trying to lobby the government in the 1980s and the 1990s as working kind of like a small ant. She said that they would go to the government ministry, they'd go home, they'd go back, and so it was kind of like this process of forming a, you know, a little line kind of like of ants going to and from the colony to try and kind of again, uh, it's, not, it's not my image, but it's the image that she was using, that they were small, the government was big, and slowly but surely they were going to attain their rights. Um, and women in Bahrain really did enter a, a period of change in 2000. 2001 is a major turning point in women's rights in Bahrain. Uh, I don't know why there's a transition there. Well, I guess I can go. Um, so the state, after many years of kind of being disinterested in women's rights, takes an interest in women's rights. Um, and this kind of is deployed in two separate ways. Uh, women, you know, get the right to vote. Um, you know, as the parliament is reinstated, the parliament was dissolved in the 1970s, reinstated in 2001 as a new king came to power. Women are given the right to vote. Um, and I kind of argue that this has to do with the government deploying a progressive image for the governmental ends, has very little to actually do with kind of really trying to give women uh, women's rights. Um, and I say that the government um, gave right to women, in the voting rights to women, um, for political means uh, that played to both local and international audiences, the local audience being women and trying to gain voting support from women, uh, the international audience uh, being, you know, the the attempt to demonstrate the nation's progressive nature in the region in an effort to secure economic alliances, you know, for example, the Bahrain Free Trade Agreement or to kind of attract capital to the country um, in certain kind of ways. Um, so the first election cycle was in 2002. Uh, women ran, but they achieved no success. Uh, many Bahrainis, uh, in part, they achieved no success because the, the election was boycotted by a major segment of the population. Uh, the Shia boycotted the election because of a last-minute change that the king had put in place to the National Action Charter. So the people, the Bahraini people voted 98% towards uh, implementing the National Action Charter, whereby they thought that they were going to be getting a bicameral parliamentary structure. Both uh, uh, would have been 
elected by the, the people of Bahrain. Whereas in the last, at the last minute, the king changed it, and instead of having both uh, party, both kind of houses be elected, one was appointed by the king, and the second one was then elected. So therefore, there were kind of always forty pro-government votes that could essentially counterbalance any of the progressive legislation that could have come out of the elected parliament body um, or the short council. So, I mean, there's kind of tensions there. People boycotted the election in, a, in an effort to try and uh, challenge some of this, but it to too little effect. Um, uh, so these are just some of the women that I uh, spoke with. Um, Miriam Al-Ruwai, she runs, uh, she's head of the Bahraini Women's Union. Sabal Asfour was one of the very first female candidates. Um, she ran independently and then uh, later was officially sanctioned by a political party, which was a first. Um, and FF al-Jamri is a prominent uh, Shia um, women's activist and uh, ran for office and was jailed for some of her activism. Um, so as I was kind of emphasizing, the 2000s were a real turning point for women's rights, 2001, when we get the right to vote, 2003, the Supreme Council for Women was created in 2000, or was created. Um, it's led by Sheikha Shabika, uh, the first wife of King Hamid. Um, and as you can see from some of these diagrams, it engages fully and completely women in development discourse. Um, so it talks about gender mainstreaming. Um, and so I'm, you know, I think that this is kind of the government appropriating women's rights as a means of kind of displaying a certain level of uh, progressivity. Um, so women are given the right to vote. They are engaging in formal women's organizations sponsored by the government in addition to their own independent organizations. And in 2006, two other points of performance of progressivity come about as far as um, my research leads me to believe. Uh, the government nominated Haya bint Rashid al-Khalifa to be the first uh, Middle Eastern woman to assume the post of presidency for the General Assembly of the United Nations. Um, the first woman was elected to parliament uh, in 2006. Uh, and so, you know, we see that the government is enacting these these laws and, you know, establishing these bodies on behalf of women's rights and they're performing a certain level of progressivity towards an international body, but this does not mean that it's registering particularly well locally. Um, so they're anti-family uh, law protest in 2005. Um, and I should emphasize that, you know, in many places there's probably a debate about family law, and in Bahrain it's, it's no different. You know, the process of codification doesn't mean that women who have entered into marital, well, I actually will cut this out because this is much too basic for this audience. Um, so, you know, just kind of emphasizing that the government decided to try to codify family law kind of out of nowhere um, on... November 2nd, 2005, the Supreme Council for Women plastered the country in a poster campaign to support the codification of family law. The posters read, a safe family equals a safe country. Um, and these, you know, billboards ran, you know, down the causeway that kind of connect, or halfway down the causeway that connects Saudi and Bahrain. Uh, you know, it basically was a, a nationwide uh, plastering of this this slogan, the banners represented a woman who had uh, demonstrated a small nuclear family of an unveiled mother, a father and two children, a boy and a girl, um, also unveiled. So this was kind of the image that the government was representing to society. Uh, and then the people in, in Bahrain didn't take this particularly well. Um, as soon as these signs were hung along Bahrain's causeways and roadways, replacing the standard advertisements for mobile phones, retail vacancies, and banks, the Islamic 
Scholars Council, a Shia clerical body, established a counter campaign calling for uh, calling the Bahrain Shia to mobilize a demonstration to show popular unrest with the proposed legislation. The posters the clerics used also featured a family, a father, a son, and a mother and a daughter. But in this case, both both of the female figures were veiled. Um, and their slogan read, Never will a family be safe without following the path of God. Their call for a public demonstration was answered in force. On November 9th, 2005, 100,000 marchers, which is a huge percentage of Bahrain's population, it's about a seventh of the native population of Bahrain, took to the streets. They filled the narrow causeways, the broad highways, they essentially, I mean, traffic didn't move in downtown Manama, much like we saw with the, you know, the current protests they occupied what used to be Pearl Square, or the Pearl Roundabout. Um, the anti-family law crowd that day was mostly female. It was mostly Shia. Um, up, upwards of uh, 60,000 women joined forces to protest the changing legal structure that they thought, you know, the uncodified law they believed uh, best protected their interests as daughters, mothers, wives, and, you know, their vision of an Islamic society. That's not to say that there weren't women who were supporting codification at this period. On a street corner across from the Ministry of Justice on the same November day, November 9th, uh, 600 women gathered in support of codification of Bahrain's family law. Uh, the debate about family law in Bahrain is manifold. Uh, the march was primarily about family law, but family law is coded to mean so much more than pure Islamic relation, family relations. In Bahrain, uh, a confluence of kinship ties, religious expectations, identity politics make the debate about family law a political rather than exclusively religious debate. So in this period, we see uh, direct governmental intervention and involvement in women's rights. Uh, they deploy a language of international human rights to try and, I think, demonstrate their progressivity. Uh, Bahrain did codify family law for the Sunnis only uh, in 2009 while I was in the country. So there's a split in kind of how family law is implemented. So they can say that they have a codified family law, but it's not universally applied. Um, you know, as there hasn't been any kind of real move to try and codify the Shia family law in part because in splitting the family law structure, they have created a system where uh, there's less uh, governmental dissent uh, or protest against the government from the Shia because, you know, they kind of conceded along family law lines. Um, so, yeah, there's a popular backlash that um, this popular backlash uh, enabled the government to say, well, the people don't want this law, we tried, and so they're able to kind of implement it just for the Sunnis and not for the Shia, but still perform to the international community the fact that they're uh, progressive. Um, and so kind of I'll end there, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Thank you.